Welcome to Week in Horror. All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. The podcast that deep dives all the films you love. You gotta be fucking kidding. The week they dropped in horror history. We all go a little mad sometimes. With your horror hosts. JL. When a shirtless Sam Elliott with no mustache takes out a, an alligator with a uh, with an oar, that's the kind of movie I'm looking for. Eugene. And we're just casually just like, yeah, so that's probably the best way to go, light someone on fire with gasoline. Alex. It would not be an original lineup if I didn't have fucking technical <laughs> Johnny O. Now, it's not an Amityville. Or where is this? Amityville. And Aaron. They, they got manure to work with and nothing grew from it. <laughs> News, trailers, trivia, special guests, and more. You're going to need a bigger boat. Live show every Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central at YouTube.com slash Week in Horror. Welcome to prime time, bitch! And wherever you listen to podcasts. One by one, we will take you. Week in Horror. <laughs> Stay scared. <laughs> welcome, welcome, horror fans. It is Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time. That means it's time for another episode of the Week in Horror podcast. The only podcast that Fungui Migrunov Cthulhu Wagner Nagel Fatagin. I think I pulled that off. And if you're listening Good to job. us on your and if you're listening to us on your favorite podcast host, you can join us here on YouTube for our live show. So you too can get in on all the bloody fun and maybe win some week in horror trivia prizes. This week we are covering select horror films released October 23rd through October 29th. Thank you all so much for joining us. Um, I'm not Alex. I'm I'm actually JL. Alex was supposed to be here, and with me tonight is Eugene. What's up, everybody? All right. So, we have some things that we want to get to before we dive into tonight's selection, but first and foremost, let's go ahead and pop this up, because we have one big, huge, giant announcement, and that is we have a new Patreon. Javers has joined the Weekend Horror Patreon family. Thank you so much, Javers. Thank you, Javers. We appreciate all that huge support. We really, really do. And, of course, uh, before we dive into the further stuff, because we got some things that we want to talk about, and we're going to digress a little bit and something. We're going to watch a trailer real quick for a new movie that came out that's pretty damn creepy. But first, let's say hi to who is in the live chat. I see Travis Brown is here. Good to see you, Travis Brown. Says, hey there, horror fiends. And uh, cannot polish the turd of Halloween ends. And uh, wrote it in no less name. Says, can't polish a turd. Lights the rooftop jail signal. Damn straight. But we're not, <laughs> not quite, not quite going to do that tonight. But we are going to discuss so, and I see Sarcasm's here. Good to see you, Sarcasm. Denova28 as well. Donnie does that. Good to see you. Aaron Reese is hanging out in the chat. Good to see you, Aaron. Tony Regime as well says, Hello, Weekend Horror, with the obligatory uh, alternative energy. Appreciate that. Uh, Tony, Dib Dib is here. Good to see you. Joshua Lee as well. And some, a bunch of our amazing supporters. Jinju says, Hello, everyone. So, are we doing this? All right. Hell yeah, we are. And I see Charlie Welch is here, the only man on the internet you never make a bet with. Says, God, F off Charlie Make. Yeah, definitely make that stop. It's getting a little on the old side. But fortunately, we're here. And we can talk about horror movies. Talk about something fun that we all enjoy. Instead of all the chaos and insanity that is out there on Hollywood Boulevard. Good to see you, NANA. Thanks so much for being here, bud. Still appreciate you uh, hanging out. One of our longest and oldest supporters. Uh, let me see. Sarcasm is still at work. Says, engaging work mode. Absolutely. But we see you over there. Appreciate you being here. Stream elements to stream elements bot running. I don't know what that is. That's not me. So that's I, weird. That's yeah, that's weird. I don't know that's what strange. that is. 
Logical Hillbillies here. It says, hello, all you scary mofos. Good to see you, Logical Hillbilly. Thanks for hanging out with us, bud. Yep, same shit, different week, Aaron Reese. And Joshua Lee says, Klaatu, Verada. <laughs> yep, we, we feel you. Mr. Blord's here all the way from Chicago. Good to see you, bud. Thanks so much for hanging out. And I see Charlie Welch says, hit one in the chat if you're tired of ones in the chat. Absolutely. Plothole is also hanging out. Says, don't say hi to me, even if you were upset about that movie. Well, your opinion would have been nice. But apparently, you weren't available to come on the show, so we're going to talk about it. But don't worry. Um, there's there's something I want to point out about this. We'll get, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. I promise you we'll, we will get to it. Because that's the big thing on everybody's lips is like freaking reviews about Halloween ends. So I promise you we'll get to that. And I think we're all caught up. Fantastic. That's all the amazing people that are here in the chat that I see in the uh, stream. So thank you all so much. Appreciate y'all hanging out. So before we dive into that, first and foremost, we must do this. We must raise a glass or a drink and, and pay our respects to the passing of Ted White, of stuntman and actor Ted White, who recently passed away. He was our beloved Jason uh, in, I believe, it was Friday the 13th Part 4. I believe so, yes. And he was uh, an amazing, uh, had an amazing career. But that was predominantly in the horror co in the horror uh, genre. That's what he was known for. So that's so unfortunately one more Jason that has passed. So um, we're going to miss him. But raise a glass for uh, Ted White. So another one. Rest in peace. Oh, such a shame. But we will have his body of work to remember him by and all the amazing stuff that he did. So, uh, he says he'll give his opinion next week. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. All right. So, here we go. All right. <clears throat> Halloween ends. So, we streamed it. We streamed it twice in the Discord. We streamed it once earlier for all the people that listened to the show over in, who watched the show over in, uh, over across the pond. And then we streamed it for everybody here in the States. So, I had two screenings. I myself have watched the film four times so far. Um, I don't just because, know how you have that much free time to watch everything four times. I I multitask, so I watch. So once I've watched it one time and it has my full attention, then I watch it again. But I can do other stuff while I'm watching because I just keep going back and forth so I can catch everything. So I, while I'm watching, I'm also like writing. So I'm doing both. Um, so I'm or I'm doing something on the computer while I have it going on one screen. So I, I typically just oh hey I hard dogs good to see you thanks so much for being here appreciate that yep it was a shame he was uh, that was a bit that was a big loss. So um, I've watched it a bunch and I have formulated an opinion about this thing. And first and foremost, you've seen it. I've seen it. I've only had I've only able to watch it once, and okay. I also have an opinion on it. All right. So before we dive into mine, because I have something interesting I want to bring up, I want to see if you agree with me. So, but go ahead. So, what what did you what is your takeaway from the last entry in the Blumhouse Halloween franchise? Because now the rights have reverted back to a cod. So, Blumhouse is done with it. That's it. So, this is it. The last Halloween movie we're gonna get, and the last one with Jamie Lee Curtis because she is done with them. What do you got? How was the? What do you think? See, it's better than the second one. I'll give it that. It it takes some weird like I don't, I don't want to spoil it for anything for anybody. It takes a weird turn, and I thought it was going to go in a direction that I was really hoping that it did. I, I really thought it was going in a direction. I was like, "Oh, please don't do this! Please don't! Please don't! No, no, no!" I was like, "La la 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 la! No, no, no!" Um, on it, it just. It's okay. 
Like I, that's not how I feel about it. It's just it, it's just it's okay. It has a very complete ending. Like okay. I, said, I won't spoil it, but it has a very very complete ending, and I'll just leave it at that. And it seems like they're going to keep it encompassed. I guess because of the rights reverting back, it's going to keep encompassed of this uh, this own kind of standalone trilogy. The first one's still the best one. And by far and above, the first one is the best one. The second one's the worst one. This kind of puts it in the middle. They kind of learned a little bit from the second one. But it, I maybe that first one was lightning in a bottle. Maybe. Just maybe it kind of went out and maybe or maybe it's just kind of like a hey, let's just do let's just do one and okay. let's see what happens. And then all of a sudden you get a two movie deal and you're trying to figure out what to do for the rest of it. Yeah, it, okay at best. Okay, at best. All right. Okay, at best. So, so I was torn. Okay, I was torn because, as as in my usual kind of motive, I I I typically tend to try to find the good in what I'm watching. I try to find the redeeming qualities of what I'm watching, and the film does have some redeeming qualities. It has some things it did well. The final fight scene between between Michael and Jamie, I thought was really really good. I thought it was well done. And of course, you know, Michael is dead. I'm pretty much convinced that the only way to handle killers now is what they did at the end of the movie i'm not going to spoil it for anybody but what they actually how they handled it so but here's the thing and for anybody who's seen the movie and i i've got i've got to bring this up and and it and it hit me it hit me after the third viewing okay what we were watching was not actually a halloween film it was the plot of christine Okay, I mean, follow me with that. Follow me with that. So, I, no, as soon as you said so, it, I'm starting to think, and I'm like, I. Okay, so right. yeah, like, okay, so you, you, so take it. Arnie Cunningham is a bullied misfit nerd, right? Who finds an old beat up killer car that makes him cool and evil. Okay, Corey Cunningham is a bullied misfit who finds an old beat up killer. That makes him cool and evil. <laughs> so, so for those of you that are listening, you can Christine, like point by point, beat by beat, is just Christine, except and right. Halloween ends and I replace the car. And I think I only recognize this because I know I know the movie Christine so well. And I know the story, Christine, so well. They, I mean, hell, it, you know, it's right there on my wall. So I love that movie. And something just wasn't said. So I, I was like, on the, was like the third viewing, I was like, holy shit. He's Arnie Cunningham. He's literally Arnie. Okay? And I'm like, he's Arnie. And the girl, the, the, uh, the uh, Lori's daughter, is essentially Lee, Lee Cabot. And and uh, fucking Jamie Lee Curtis was fucking um, the friend that was, try- was trying to stop him. I was like, this is fucking Christine. He literally <laughs> just happened to come across the old beat up killer that then transforms him into a cool and evil person. I was like, they just copied Christine. They just they did. Wow. So they just repackaged Stephen King. I know, right? So I was like, despite its its redeeming qualities, okay, the cinematography was good. It was well shot. Technically, it's a good movie. 
Yeah, there te- any, technically yeah, was, yeah. Technically, shot, it was an extremely good movie. I liked the idea. I, and the, here's what here's something else that's really, really weird. Is that they died, and this really, really fucked me up. Is because despite the fact that it looks good for a movie, it's really, really well shot. The the the, the killing spree towards the end was really, really solid. I really enjoyed that um, because there was kind of a a more a more emotional bend or more emotional slant to the kill to the killing spree than there was with Michael. Michael was just like a killing machine, just like walked through people, just like a walking wood chipper. Whereas these ones were more directed. These were revenge kills instead of just like I murder everything in my path. So there's a slightly more human bend, a human slant to it because it, you know, of what was going on. But the the fucked up thing was is that they dove into an issue. They dove into a storytelling that Rob Zombie did in Halloween 2. The idea, Rob Zombie was examining the idea that that extreme violence infects those that it touches and that from there it, it manifests in different ways. So his idea was that the individuals who survived Michael's like killing spree in the first Halloween, the first Rob Zombie Halloween, that Lori and Annie and Sheriff Brackett and, and uh, Dr. Loomis, everyone around them had been infected by his evil. So his evil, his violence had gone around, and they all bore the physical and psychological scars of it. And it comes out in different ways. Lori, it came out in Lori as self-destructive. It came out in Sheriff Brackett as overprotective. It came out in uh, Annie as being over the overbearing friend. It came out in Loomis as completely withdrawn self-centeredness. It all comes out in different ways. That's what he was trying to explore with Halloween 2, but then he put in all the surrealistic shit, like the, the like you know trying to give like like materialize the connective tissue, so with the whole thing with the white horse and the white horse symbolizes rage and all that stuff, and people were like, "What the hell am I watching?" It's like art house nonsense, and but that's what he was touching on. He was touching on how evil or the violence that is beset that we get from evil infects those around it and spreads like a plague. And that's what Zombie was trying to do. And they used that trope in this movie. At the same time, exploring the exploring the idea of it or basically rehashing Christine. So they literally ripped off Zombie and King to make this movie. And that really fucking bothered. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Okay. Oh, talking about first of all, it's Blumhouse. Blumhouse films are shot well. They're technically yes, sound. always, yeah. It's just always. That's just the way it is. So I'm not even Got to comment on the technical side of it, but I like I like the aspect of exploring things like PTSD. You have mm-hmm. people who go through a traumatic event and how it affects them. Stuff that's interesting. The problem is, is that so many horror films do it in such a poor way. Yeah, where it's either non-existent, and like a lot of slasher films. This is my best friend. We've grown up, grown up. We've known each other for 20 years. And then he gets his head cut off. And they're like, oh, okay, he's done. And then never, like, here, like, it's never. That, that's one of the things that made the first Halloween in the Blumhouse trilogy so good. Is that it was focusing not, not just on the relationship between Laurie and, uh, between uh, Lori Strode and Michael Myers. And how it was, and all of the bullshit that was conjured from it is just like, no. She was just, she's just the one that got away. Is all it was like she was in his path and she managed to survive. So it was play. It was play that. But then the PTSD, the trauma of that was the biggest character in that. Lori's relationship with her daughter, her relationship with her granddaughter, her relationship with the town. How pretty much everybody had this disparaging look at her because of who she was, which turns the the kind of final girl trope on its head because it looks at it from the realistic perspective. Even if you are the hero, 
the effect is like, but, but this is all centered around you. And because it's centered around you, you survived. All these other people did not survive. What makes you so goddamn special? And people start to look at that individual with derision, which only feeds their, their post-traumatic stress because they have no support system. And so she exactly. withdraws. She withdraws in her, into herself and becomes a survivalist, living you know, kind of like you know, as far off the grid as possible. And then like everything is just paranoia. So that makes sense. That's why the first one works so well. And then the reintroduction of the villain of Michael Myers into her life, and everything just goes to completely to shit. Trying to take it further than that, explore further, was admirable. It was an admirable attempt, especially in two, when we recognize that groupthink and all kinds and and uh, and I would say I uh, say like uh, mob mentality is ultimately self-destructive, and that makes sense as well. What they were trying to explore there, but in the third one, they just got lazy. They took something that was already explored, which was what Rob Zombie did in Halloween Two, which was critically and commercially derided, and then they just copied the the bones. Of Christine in order to get the narrative with Corey, to it, 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 you know, it's called it's called money. That's I guess what it so. is. I, I, so, I, picture, first... I picture the director sitting there with his monitor and his stacks of cash as he's flipping through them. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. That's go what's ahead. so obnoxious. It's, it's like given the the length of time in between the film's release. More work should have gone into this. The problem was, I think that when you have a concept like Halloween, the it's it's very it, it's actually pretty two dimensional. Trying to go deeper than that, like Zombie did, doesn't work. Doesn't really work because Michael and Jason and Freddy and so on and so forth. What they are are essentially avatars for they're avatars for what we despise about ourselves. They are our sins come back to haunt us. And that is a very simple thing. It's literally just a force of nature. That's what slashers are. They're forces of nature that have to either be ended or they blow themselves out like 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 storms. But the problem is when you try to go deeper into that and try to go into the psychology of that behind this, you wind up muddying the waters and you lose the slash deal. You you move into you move into psychological uh, psychological horror territory, which is ostensibly not really slash territory because if you notice, psychological horrors that have a slasher in them don't focus on the slasher. Okay, the kills are tertiary to what is going on because that's all about character development, so we understand the psychology. But when you take a slasher film maintain the slasher deal and then throw in psychological elements then people are like no you're watering down my experience and it just comes off as as hackneyed and lazy and it's like i know people say yeah but i don't hate the film i don't i said it has some redeeming qualities i was i was enthralled when it finally got to the throwdown between michael and and uh and laurie I was like, I mean, yes. that's, that's the part that everybody was waiting for. That's what I was waiting for, and I and they did it beautifully. I loved it, and so I like that. Which you know, I don't want to spoil anything for it if you haven't seen it yet. But I loved the throwdown. The denouement was great. I was cool with it. It's all fantastic. They wrapped it up in a nice little bow. But getting there, that road is rough. So it it, it really really is. Yeah. I, all, all, now I'm always weary when films are filmed back to back. Because it's the, who, it's the whole thing. You had Halloween 2018. It was just a standalone. It was supposed to be its own thing. Then they get greenlit for two films, and they film them back-to-back. It always worries me. There's nothing wrong with doing a second one 
learn from how the second one is received and then figure out the best way and in terms of critical audience reaction on how to wrap your series because right. when you film back to back you're already locked in so if you're if your trilogy takes a bad turn oh you've already filmed the third one you're stuck with it right and that's yeah. and one great example is you talk about the star wars prequels the first one i was out there the second one uh but mm. He had time in between to learn things about the first and second ones and make the third one the best, the best of the, the prequels better. Same here. It's like I would have preferred more space in between so you can actually maybe breathe on their own. Right. And kind of see what works, what doesn't. Let's kind of revisit some of the, let's kind of revisit some of the stories. Let's kind of really dive into something like great characterization in slasher films i do i like I'll, i want to care about these characters because that you're rooting for them you're hoping for them when they die sucks when they live you're happy about it instead of just cannon fodder but this it just no and see now I, all i see is christine so <laughs> <laughs> so definitely let us know down in the chat thumbs up thumbs down for halloween ends and um am i correct in my assessment is it pretty much did they did blumhouse just re or did the writers did they just re so i'm not gonna blame jason blum for this or blumhouse but did the writers just rehash christine for this plot let me know if my analysis is correct because that's where my mind ended on that one so before we move on, let's see. We got some new people in here who popped in. I see Claire View is in the house. Good to see you, Claire View. Circa has this chance. Polish, polish, polish. Wasn't polishing it. Just recognizing it for what it is. Denova 28 <laughs> says Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 was crap. Um, it was a, I think it was ahead of its time. He was trying to do something interesting, and it, what he tried to do was way beyond his... I mean, I love Rob Zombie, but what he was trying to do in that movie was way beyond his skill of, as a filmmaker. As a had, filmmaker and a writer, so it had to go for the second one. It had to go a different approach because you can't explore PTSD and at the same time go really weird. And it has it has its moments, uh, especially the Daniel Harris kill. It's like, oh, okay, that's a nice hitting moment. Yeah, but then it just it gets weird. Yeah, it just gets it really gets strange. Weird. Yeah. So, but definitely let us know. And I think I saw I saw Clairview pop in. Good to see you, Gosh of Heckfire says, "Yo, what up, pimps? Good to see you, Gosh of Heckfire. One of the most amazing names on the internet." Thanks so much for popping in, bud. And I think I caught everybody else. Yes, we're all caught up. Fantastic. All right, so definitely let us know down in the comments below or at weekendhorror.gmail.com your thoughts on the movie. Thumbs up, thumbs down, and do you agree with my analysis of it? So if you can see what I see. So um, also, before we move on to the last thing, we're going to check out this trailer, this super creepy trailer that just dropped. And But I want to remember reminder, thank you, Angel Rivera, who says, remember to vote in the face of horror. So yes. I just found out, I just double-checked it, um, because I, ha I have it constantly open on my screen so I can refresh it. I'm currently in second place, and I'm in second place because someone who is actually at the very, very who was who was last made a massive run up to the front. So, and I mean, this thing is bouncing all over the place more than the previous rounds did. In the previous rounds, I was pretty much first, you know, through the first five, no problem, because of the, the support of all of you. But this one, we're bouncing all over the place. So I've been second, I've been third, I've been back up to first. And this roller coaster is not good. It's just not good for my emotions. You know, I'm just, oh, I'm in a roller coaster of emotion. Oh. So, but I'm currently in second place. And right now, double votes are currently uh, offered on the, uh, for the, for voting. But if you pop over there and yes, I will link it. Claire View, 
bam there's the link the link is also in the description and it's right there in the live chat faceofhorror.org you can click that link and you can go vote for me so just remember if you vote you need a says that jump sounds a little sus donnie does that you're not the first person to tell me that donnie you are not um but for right now you need a facebook account in order to vote and if you do verification if you do verification on it and it won't cost you anything but if you do verification you can get multiple votes per day so that's all there on the website you can check that out and of course if you want to you can always donate to the b plus foundation down towards the bottom and you get double votes for that as well um it's totally up to you it's not required but it's a good uh, but the donation goes to the B+ Foundation, the Andrew McDonough Foundation, which is a fantastic organization that provides financial assistance to families dealing with pediatric cancer. It's an amazing group. I've looked them up, fantastic people. And of course, those votes go to me and help me to win this bad boy because if I don't come in first in this round, I'm out. So I have to come in first every round from this point on. For we have three more rounds to go. 7, 8 and 9. And I got to be first in all of them. Done deal. So that's pretty much it. But yep, uh, like I said, NA, NA, you don't need Facebook to do it. But you can, uh, it's there. You can hit it. So pretty much it. So yeah, check out that link. And the last thing we're going to do mm -hmm. is we're going to check out this trailer that I found. Hey, good to see you, Boom. Thanks so much for hanging out. Mike the Honey Badger, thanks so much for being here. And uh, let's check out this trailer. So recently dropped the trailer for Megan. And I want to show this because it is... Uh, de delightedly creepy. So, almost Uncanny Valley style. So, uh, check this out. Please enjoy the trailer for Megan. Woo! Yes, Gosh Effect Virus says, doll movies creep me the fuck out. Love them. <laughs> <laughs> and Denova says, if I saw that running at me, I would shit my pants. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and NNA. That is when you bust out the chainsaw. <laughs> Oh, so, yeah, yeah, so, that, I mean, Uncanny Valley style, that's, it's getting up there. Oh, yes, and nail gun, yes! Nail gun! <laughs> Drop the nail gun. Annabelle on steroids. <laughs> Claire View says, no dolls, no dolls, ever, ever, <laughs> I get that, but it's just looking good, appropriately creepy, not to mention the girlfriend from Get Out, so, it, you know, whenever she shows it, she shows it, it always reminds me, she reminds me of that meme I saw, is like, I want someone who smiles at me like she smiles at him. Like in the poster, and then someone responded, "Have you seen the movie?" <laughs> <laughs> oh, freaking fantastic! Wrote it in wrote another name. Says EMP gun, <laughs> no power. Yeah, I get that. I said, "Yep, that, yeah." Hey, Nemo eight thirteen is here. Good to see you, Nemo. Says, "Yep, that trailer nailed it." <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. I see what you did there. Put a bump. All right, so. I see uh, Alex is probably still, uh, yep, he's, um, oh, says, Jinju says, I would want a wood chipper. That doll will never be reconstructed. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, um, since Alex, I think, is still indisposed, or he's currently, he's currently busy dealing with something, uh, I think the kids are probably, I think the kids are sick is what he said. So he's dealing with that, so we will move on. So let's dive into the movies we have tonight. Uh, Eugene, what do we have up first? First, we have Prince of Darkness, which was released October 23rd, 1987. Fuck you. Roll it. Awesome. All right. So you have the Prince of Darkness, directed by the man, the myth, the legend himself, John Carpenter, starring Donald Pleasance, Lisa Blunt, 
Victor Wong, and Jameson Parker. And basically what you end up happening is, is that you have these scientists discover fudge slime uh, under a church, and the slime happens to be the essence of Satan. Like the sentient liquid embodiment. Yeah. Wait, wait. And <laughs> shit gets real. It absolutely gets real. <laughs> it it really hate. does. <laughs> All right. So it, I'm so glad that we finally get to, to touch on this one. And yes. Uh, oh, yeah. Gosh, if I press this porn stash, that is all. Yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, Jameson Parker was rocking the serious 70s stash in this movie, but he was, he, everyone was badass. And of course, Egg Shen from Big Trouble. Egg Shen was on the job. Um, but I, I'm obviously, and yes, Aaron Reese is correct. Uh, well, not so much. Just prepare for the jail fanboy hour. I'll try to keep it to a minimum because you know because I love Carpenter so much. But there, but yeah, uh, there there is something that we want to address on this one, and predominantly it was so. This is midway through the so this is midway through the Apocalypse trilogy. So uh, Prince of Darkness was the second film, the second film in John Carpenter's kind of thematically. Uh, linked Apocalypse Trilogy, the first one being The Thing, this one being Prince of Darkness, and then, of course, In the Mouth of Madness with Sam Neill. So the big point on this one is is what's really, really intriguing about that I wanted to kind of address on this one was the unique kind of tonal shift that occurred with this movie. Now, with the first film and the second film, the first film is a remake of The uh, Thing from Outer Space, and then, of course, the third one is adapted directly from, uh, directed, uh, adapted from the works of H.P. Lovecraft. So we have two big, two kind of adaptations there on the first one because then you know howard hawks you know came from uh adapted from who goes there the book who goes there so the first two are adaptations but this one is purely from the mind of john carpenter written and directed by him even though it says written by uh martin quatermass that's actually an in joke on john carpenter's behalf that's actually his a pseudonym that he uses so written and directed by john carpenter and then produced by his longtime producer uh, larry franco so all of this came from his mind which is why we see such a dramatic tonal shift between the two, between the three films, between this one and the other two films. And so I think that this go, the reason why it is, why this is the one that kind of underperforms and why the first, the first one and the third one are more kind of like, you know, widely lauded is kind of falls on Carpenter himself. The movie in itself is not bad. It's, it's a good, nice, creepy little thriller, but it's definitely more, I would say, it's nihilistic, the same as kind of the thing and Mouth of Madness and in the Mouth of Madness was, but it just really doesn't have the fun that the first one and the third one do. The really energy, like, like the really, really kind of like you know engaging aspects of it. Because and maybe that falls on John Carpenter as a storyteller. I'm not 100 percent sure because the cinematography is there, the the music, the scoring is there that Carpenter did, and so everything kind of works except for the story in itself, which is which is odd. But it's the one bit. It's the one thing that stands out from the other from the other two. It's and the thing is, I can kind of see what you're talking about. I don't know if I would necessarily use the word fun, but it kind of lacks maybe the energy of that the other two have because there, there's a certain vibe. I'm not, I'm not saying like super energetic, high energy, but there's a certain vibe that thing in, in the Mouth of Madness have, and that's why I think that's why they performed better maybe not necessarily like the box office because the thing bombed the box office but at least in terms of rewatchability this one has kind of just a weird kind of energy to it mm -hmm. and like it because it's a good film it's a good film it's definitely it's very enjoyable but it seems just kind of off a little bit it kind of when you start getting to the i guess you want to call it the satanic zombies 
right. on it, which there's there's some like some fun moments, but you have the satanic zombies versus the creature from the thing. The creature from the thing, it's just a better villain. But right. it's just hands down a better Well, yeah, villain. it's it's so the thing and the the thing and in the mouth of madness, you are yeah, you I agree with you on that. But they, while they both present their kind of existential threats as, you know in terms of the apocalypse, the threat is very is is real and it's there. So like the threat of the thing is actually the monster in and of itself, and in the mouth of madness, the threat you know, the idea of that would that he is a character in a book. And, you know, he's not in control of his own life. And all of this is just being written by this author. But that essentially is the author bringing about the apocalypse. So we have identifiable threats in both those ones. In this one, the threat is more existential and the film in itself is more cerebral, as uh, Aaron Reese has pointed out. So it was more because it relied more on kind of scientific explanations. Because the film was inspired when John Carpenter was taking, I think it was, he took courses on... He, or he was researching theoretical physics and atomic theory. And he, you know, there were these ideas here that he could kind of say, well, what, you know, what if evil was this kind of pervasive energy that, you know, was quantumly entangled with everything in, in the universe? And so, whereas Satan is not so much, the idea of Satan is not so much like a figure, like, ha-ha, horns and, you know, pitchfork, but this kind of, like, just the evil that runs, the, the evil current that runs through everything. And how it can manifest itself if, you know, via this kind of sludge and kind of manifest and use a host to manifest itself in our reality. The kind of anti-God idea. And I agree with um, Travis Brown. It would have been cool to get a look at the anti-God. But mm. unfortunately, we, we don't get there. And I think there may have been budgetary uh, budgetary restraints or something of the nature, but we get all the classic carpenter fare. We get a lot of gore and a lot of gooey and a lot of nasty and some really, really gross stuff. But it was the cerebral nature of it and the fact that we have our heroes kind of running around just like reacting to shit whereas unlike whereas in the mouth of madness and in the thing we have protagonists that actively make plans and try to combat this thing and try to solve problems there's really no like problem solving in here it's literally like there's a force here what the hell do we do and you know one of the you know, it comes down to Donald Pleasance, and Donald Pleasance is you know he's dropping the the, the creepy one liners and you know like the the uh, the creepy observations. I realize that Donald I realize in this movie Donald Pleasance is the fucking harbinger. Donald Pleasance made a career out of being the horror harbinger. He's like the authority figure, like the psychologist or the psychiatrist or the the man of God or whatever that kind of hangs back and tells you all the things that you need to know and be aware of, and then everybody runs off and does shit, and then it comes back to Donald Pleasance, I warned them, and that's what Donald Pleasance does. He's the perfect harbinger, and he does it with such authority that he's not like the crazy harbinger, which, you know, is like, warns everybody and then gets killed. So Donald, uh, Donald, Donald Pleasance serves his purpose here and does his whole thing, but ultimately it just kind of drops because it's missing a lot of the elements that I think make good storytelling. So, obviously, the weaker of the three. I still like it because I love the performances. Mm -hmm. But, ultimately, I think it just kind of falls because I think when it comes down to it, John Carpenter just, he needs to adapt other people's stuff. He's really good at that. But as far as storytelling on his own, uh, maybe not that strong. Yeah, it just it kind of it kind of missed just like, like I said, it's a great film. It's enjoyable. I love some of the gore effects. Um, but, you, like... To me, it just it kind of falls villain. So when you when you, you have like the biker go down and he sees like the pigeon on the cross, and I was like, oh, this is this is like really. <gasps> ah! 
<laughs> Alex has just joined us. Good to see you, bud. Hey, hey. got all the uh, the kid puke cleaned off and uh, got everybody squared away. So we're, I heard you were dealing with some spew. Just a little bit of spew, yeah. which is interesting because there's a lot of spew in this movie. A lot of spewing of fluids into people's mouths and shit, yes. which is just you know the the classic grossness. Just even uh, Angela was watching with me, and she was just like, "Oh, gross!" She just spit it into his like, "Blah!" He was like, "Oh, uh, right in his mouth." It looks uh, like he's peeing out of his mouth and just oh, so nasty. <laughs> the 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 really strong the really strong thing about this is, is the is the performances of the characters themselves. That everybody was really really strong. In this I loved the, the how different people were affected differently when they were being made into the kind of the Satan zombies or whatever. Uh, whenever they were infected. The difference between um, I can't remember the the researcher's name, but the tall black guy, and of course the other individuals. So there was a lot of there, there was a lot of intriguing little notes that were probably, but none of them were really really fleshed out. They're kind of left to the viewer's imagination, and sometimes that works of us putting the pieces together. But he kind of fills it with all with a lot of technical jargon and stuff that people probably aren't really up to speed on. So trying to put these pieces together while everything is you know all this chaos is happening kind of just you know disbalances the it causes the film to be a bit disjointed and tonally uh, a little bit different when you're coming off of the thing and you're expecting something that runs in the same vein well also on top of that when you have a cerebral movie you have to make sure that it's strong enough that people want to put in the extra effort so if you look at a movie, for example, like Inception, Inception is a very cerebral type of movie. Right. Mostly you have to watch it several times to figure out what's going on, the different layers, the dreams, and all sorts of kind of stuff. But it's so engaging enough and so visually stimulating enough that it makes you want to watch it multiple times. You really want to try to figure out what's going on. So with any kind of cerebral film, it has to be the extra effort that goes into it or people go... I just don't understand this and it doesn't hold their attention anymore. And that's, that's the failure. I'm not saying, I'm not saying this because I'm not saying this is a bad movie. I like this movie, but dealing in that cerebral genre, you have to put forth that extra effort. One thing that I think that needs to be kind of addressed, especially about this particular film. And it's, and there's a, there's kind of a theme that runs because one of the things that runs from the thing that one of the reasons why the thing didn't really do so well at the box office was because obviously E.T. was out. So people want happy, nice, lovable aliens instead of like gross ones that will take over your body and shit like that and split open and you know, all the horror. So that's one thing that kind of put people off. Rod Bot, Rod Botten's work, work was fantastic. But also because 1982, the uh, the AIDS epidemic was beginning to take off in America. And so people were becoming, aware, were becoming more aware of it. So culturally... You're looking at a film that ostensibly runs about people being infected, people infecting one another, and infecting one another unknowingly. So there was a cultural parallel there that I think was a little too intense for a lot of people, and it reminded them of what was going on outside, and that was just a it was just a little too strong. In this one, I think in Prince of Darkness, John Carpenter seems to have really, really like been. I guess he was fascinated by, it, or he was really intrigued by the the notion of the AIDS epidemic and what was going on, how the media was handling it. Because there's a lot of like, there's a lot of parallels in this, especially the scene where um, I keep wanting to call him Walter because he was Walter in Big Trouble, but um, Dennis Dunn, where Dennis Dunn makes cracks jokes about his uh, apparent homosexuality, but then he has a scene where he's literally trapped in a closet, being besieged <laughs> by women, 
okay? <laughs> and then trying to keep the door shut and then ostensibly bust his way out the back to get away from the women when the women come in. It's like, come on, guys. It's like, I don't know what he was trying to say about that, but obviously there, it's, it's, the movie is kind of a parab- parable for the AIDS epidemic, individuals infecting others uh, to, you know, to that degree. And then, of course, this weird idea that demonic possession is somehow kind of like a communicable disease in the respect like it passes from one person to the other via fluid pass between people when they're like puking or like like spraying into each other's mouths and shit but yeah there's so many homosexual references in this and uh yes uh well uh um uh victor wong victor wong was in tremors mm-hmm. so but uh you know i found that to be a little odd and he kind of like sat on that really hard. He kind of doubled down on that. And I don't know if that's supposed to be culturally, culturally relevant from him because it wasn't so much a commentary. Like he didn't use it like Romero would use it or King would use it or something like where he's using what's going on as, as kind of a commentary to his story. He just kind of like used it to kind of like throw it in there and I guess make it pointed. I'm not a hundred percent sure. I just realized that they were there, but it was kind of like, Oh, it's an in joke. Ha ha. You see what I did there? But it doesn't really serve the plot, which is weird. I I don't know. I I really don't. Um it makes me think it makes me think back on uh Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two that it kind of ah, goes yes. into like a like wow this is definitely going into e- the uh, basically the homosexual uh agenda here, which is absolutely nothing wrong with that, but it's like there are some strong tones in it. And it's kind of like a okay. Oh, okay. Which is it's completely fine, and it definitely works well when it serves the plot well. And I'm definitely I'm all for that. Um, this kind of out there somewhere on it, and then the fact that it kind of ties in back in religion, maybe well, okay, yeah, yeah. He kind of maybe kind of some maybe kind of some repression where you have something where you have the people who get infected become the mindless zombies that end up following. They end up following the slime, and they're drawn to the beyond because you, when you have the girl look at the mirror, and she's trying to draw into basically like the next. And maybe it's something like when you maybe it's more of an allegory of people who fall into that religious side, end up becoming mindless zombies, and the people who stay kind of true to who they are, able to maintain their own freedom and their own individuality intriguing like you can go kind of deep on it but you know it may be that just people just didn't want to do that with carpenter fair i don't know or maybe they needed a more prevalent threat on screen like like travis browner brought up if we had actually seen like the anti-god in that respect instead of like the monsters that were running around we saw a little bit like the hand that was coming out that looked very similar that i won't lie looked very similar to tim curry's hand in in, in dark the darkness hand from legend but <laughs> um but yeah unfortunately we didn't see it and yes you're right uh donnie does that yeah victor wong was in the golden child he was pretty much the 80s go-to for ancient chinese wisdom so it's pretty much you know victor wong was legend in that but denova 28 is right porn stashes spewing into mouths communicable diseases yeah yeah. So, <laughs> so kind of, it's just it's just it's just it's weird. It's kind of weird, but it's great because it has a cosmic horror bent to it. It's got it asks some interesting questions. 
The film asks like big questions about you know human nature, the uh, the essence of our existence, you know the universe in and of itself, how every how we're bound by more things than we can see. So there's interesting concepts here. I just think it may have been for the time like. Carpenter, why I love him, is always ahead of his time and is always trying to communicate big things or Big Trouble in Little China, not so much, but is, is generally trying to communicate big things on screen, sometimes a little too much. You know, somebody's like, wow, he kind of like, this is really ahead. Um, like we saw with The Thing, The Thing, way ahead of its time, you know, and then In the Mouth of Madness, at the time, one of the best H.P. Lovecraft um, adaptations utilizing his imagery and his monsters in that film. So... The, you know, Carpenter being Carpenter, we, I love it for what it is, and it's, you know, it's really niche, and you're right, Genova's right, it's a really, really niche film, because it doesn't really specifically fit in any one particular genre other than, like, kind of horror, it is a horror movie, but mm -hmm. there's a lot of underpinnings, so it's kind of, like, genre-defying in that respect, because it's not horror to the degree of The Thing or In the Mouth of Madness. That's very, that's very true. Hmm. And so, I actually, I want to ask the audience, what is your favorite Apocalypse Trilogy entry on it? Is it The Thing, or is it Prince of Darkness, or is it In the Mouth of Madness? All, all three of them are great films. What is your favorite? Comment below, or shoot us an email at weekendhorror at gmail.com. <laughs> Rudy Nolas names is Big Trouble Conveyed Big Things, Ancient Gods, Devils, Monsters, and Magic, all that kind of thing. Big Trouble Conveyed that we all in our hearts have a little bit of Jack Burton in us. That's what it conveyed. <laughs> I'd say, and I have to agree, The Thing is my favorite of the three, with a very close second of In the Mouth of Madness, because Sam Neill was fucking amazing in that movie. He just made it. But The Thing is obviously my favorite. I see a lot of love for The Thing. Tony Regime says The Thing. Rodanilla's name, The Thing. Clairview, Thing. Angel Rivera says In the Mouth of Madness. The Thing, hands down. Six Demon Bag! Yes, Mouth of Madness. Mm -hmm. It should be The Mouth of Madness, but it's The Thing. <laughs> Fantastic. A lot of love there. That's you know oh, yeah. that's the hard one because they're two. You got to be in two different mindsets to watch the thing or in the mouth of madness. I mean, you can pretty much pick up um, Prince of Darkness whenever, but there's two very different like feels to those movies. So you leave Jack Burton alone. <laughs> Thank you, Aaron Reese. Absolutely, one hundred percent. All right, let's dive in to our next one, and I am going to preface this with a tr tremendous apology. To both you and Aaron for, for making you watch this. <laughs> I am so sorry. I did not think that I was gonna that this was that I did not think that we were gonna be diving to like troll two fair here. Oh it's god. Bad. That's giving it that's giving it's bad. <laughs> so the movie that yeah, so the movie that we're talking about is, is released October twenty fourth, nineteen ninety five, and it is the howling new moon rising, the seventh in the franchise. Unfortunately, there is no trailer for the... Well, fortunately? Fortunately. <laughs> there is no trailer for this movie. So in the Discord, I actually put the link to the full film because it's free on YouTube. So it's, it, it was just uploaded to YouTube. Be. So it should be free on YouTube. So you should not pay any money to watch this movie. So it's it's currently on YouTube, but there is no trailer to watch. So we'll just... I'll just... I'll do the breakdown. Uh, howling New... The Howling New Moon Rising... 
Directed, written, and produced by Clive Turner, starring John Ramsden, Ernest Kester, Clive Turner, Jack Huff, Elizabeth Shea, and Jacqueline Armitage. So the film essentially has a detective trying to uncover or uncovering several clues that connect events that took place in Howling 4, 5, and 6. And it all goes down in this little town called Pioneer Town in California where the events of those movies kind of culminate into a climactic or an anticlimactic finale. Okay. <laughs> so when I put this movie down to talk about I know we're laughing. I when I put this movie I would you know, I when you have a movie that goes seven like a seven movies long, especially when it's about werewolves, you typically get kind of diminishing returns. That was the point. That's what we were going to dive on. I did not realize just how fucking bad this movie is. <laughs> and the fucked up thing, and, and and Alex, you were right. I shouldn't put it up there with Troll 2, because at least Troll 2 was so bad, it was good. And that's what the critics were trying to say on this one. It, they were trying to find any reason to fucking just be like, that was worth the time of my life to watch. And so they were trying to use the whole, after they started getting bad reviews, they were like, well, you know, it's one of those, it's so bad that it's kind of good movies. And everybody was like, the fuck it is. Like, it's not... <laughs> And the bitch goes $18 million, you know. <laughs> this is, f- okay. Back in 95, so, I was pretty okay. All right, so the, the big thing, the fucked up thing about this movie, the fucked up thing about this one is that, okay, so the, the only, the, okay, Clive Turner had been, has been involved. Hey, um, uh, mods, if you could take care of that bot that's in the, that's in the live chat. Um, they, fire. They've, been, they've been popping up like mad lately. Uh, Rodan L.S. says, would Neil Breen have done better? By fucking leagues. <laughs> By leagues he would have done better. Okay, so Clive Turner's been inv- had been involved with the Howling franchise since uh, Howling 3, The Marsupials. He was uh, uncredited as a location manager on that film. But he's been involved in it. And he was involved in 4, 5, and 6. And so when it came down to it, he wanted to make a movie that linked the... Uh, kind of like the unlinked plot points from four, five, and six. So, like, he was like, okay, because there's all these like loose plot threads. He wanted to do a movie that brought everything together and made one chronologically consistent franchise. That's what he wanted to do. What he did was d- essentially delivered a love note to Pioneer Town, California, which has its own interesting history. I had to look into it. But it was a love note to Pioneer Town, California, with, I I guess it's a werewolf in it. <laughs> um, it's so, it's so terrible. It's beyond terrible. And, and, and it's fucking boring. So this wasn't about diminishing returns. This is about how you absolutely do not make a fucking movie. Not to mention that the vast majority of the film is literally clips from 4, 5, and 6. It's replayed. It's just all flashbacks. Just reused footage. You just reuse footage from 4, 5, and 6 in order to in order to further the narrative. You've got this weird, like, the priest and the in- inspector thing going, like, I don't know, you know, like this. They're the exposition leading into all the, the flashbacks. And then extended sequences of line dancing in the dark. Nothing happens. Explain this to me. I can't. Nothing. It's it's like he wanted to make the bridges of Madison County 
and forgot it was a werewolf movie. <laughs> like, I don't fucking get it. That, okay, that, that's the oh, only takeaway. You're supposed to put a fucking werewolf in this. Uh... <laughs> that is the only takeaway I have in this movie. You could literally take all of the werewolf stuff out and compose a short film of about 10 minutes. <laughs> I was counting. I counted. how Once I realized that we'd gone 45 minutes with no werewolf. I was like, how much werewolf is in this? And then when you put it together, you've got about a short film, 10 minutes, of red lens, of like like red view screen, like POV, running around, attacking people, and then what is probably the fucking worst werewolf transformation I've ever seen in oh, my right. life. <laughs> We're talking, ah! it was like, what? D <laughs> yes, sarcasm. D. Wallace wept. The only thing that I got interesting out of this one was I did a kind of a deep dive on what Pioneer Town is. Because I was like, this is really fucking weird. And why is the acting so bad? Because the people who live in Pioneer Town, the 400, the population, I think it has, a, as of 2020, it's like a population of like 420. But the, there's people who live there. Those people were cast in the film. That's, yeah. <laughs> so those, those are like real people. Those are not actors. They live there and they were just doing what they do. You know, like, that's what they do. Because, you know, they live in Pioneer Town. Pioneer Town is actually classified as a working movie set. So, the whole thing is literally was designed to be kind of like a live-in, working, old-timey Western movie set. And hundreds of Western films have been shot there. Roy jo Roy Rogers is, you know, was, it was, uh, was always there a lot. I mean, it's got this, in Western films, it's got a legendary history. But then they decided to shoot Howling 7 there because Clyde fucking Turner is like in love with Pioneer Town. And I've got to shoot it there because it's fucking amazing. I don't know what the fuck I watched. So Why? I was just thinking about that while you were talking. I wonder if it was like the second, third, maybe fourth movie that they were shooting in that town. That the people of the town were like, hey, wait a second. Is her life so mundane and boring that they can just put a camera up here and it looks like a fucking movie scene? Like, hold on. Even, Are we so even, outdated they keep shooting westerns here? Should even we the chili fart fucking? even the chili fart jokes <laughs> were just bad. That's not even funny. It's like the timing was awful on it. I'm watching him like the guy like he's chilling and then he farts and then the, the, the main protagonist of the movie starts like cracking up like laughing hysterical. I'm like, nothing is funny about this scene. Nothing. You have no reason to be laughing like that. This isn't even good. That was that was at best a, a chuckle. Like <laughs> it's funny. It, it beans make you fart. No, this guy like throws his head back and laughs George of the fucking jungle style. <laughs> I how I want to know how he got eighteen million dollars. Trolls two, I can understand. Trolls two had no budget and they just kind of did you know whatever they could with whatever they had. You can make a decent film for 18... You can make a really good film for $18 million. You can afford a good werewolf transformation instead of using CGI. You can afford a story. That's Is that how much Something. they spent on it? I couldn't figure out how much they spent uh, on it. They made $18 million on it. I couldn't figure out how much they put into this. It had to have been less than... Less than that. So the reason I, I opened this thing with an apology is because I was going up. I had to read into the film in order to get details and stuff like this. But in one of the one of the reviews on this, and this is why I apologize because I don't want y'all to do this to me, was that Cinema Crazed reviewed the film, and their review began with this is the the beginning of their review. Any asking anyone to watch 
the Howling New Moon Rising, should be punishable by jail time and some kind of psychological examination. And now that I have seen it, I sat through this fucker, this movie that put that put Angela to sleep. Like she she's like, I'm so tired from watching that movie. Nothing happened. It's that boring. And so, yeah, I apologize for that. The movie in itself, I mean, if you if you read into the the production story behind it was absolute fucking chaos. Turner had one idea and he was working closely with I think it was the guy's name was uh was Roger Nall. And at the very beginning of the movie, they they digressed on what they wanted the they creatively uh, disagreed with what they wanted the werewolf to look like. And Clive Turner wanted the werewolf to look very similar to the to the werewolf in Original Nightmare, which was number 4. And then Nall wanted to look completely different and do something, bring something new to the screen. They couldn't fucking agree, and it wound up with Nall fucking walking off the goddamn movie. And then, and this might be the kicker, Nall walks off the goddamn production like, I'm fucking out of here. And then Turner, in a brilliant move, reshoots 50% of the movie in three fucking days. You can tell. Half the movie he <laughs> shot in three days. Reshoots. What the fuck? Yes, Rodan Ellis is so bad, even JL can't polish it. I can't. And someone else said that too. Tony Regime says, you know it's bad when JL doesn't even roll the turd in glitter. This is not worth the glitter and polish. No, because the ones that are worth glitter and polish are the ones that actually fucking tried. Like, you're out there yes! putting your heart yeah. in it, you can tell. But, like, when you just throw it in the bucket to just make money because you have six other fucking movies and now you got to try to continue a storyline that you had three movies ago, but somehow punched out, like, three good movies, you're, like, holding on for fucking dear life. When somebody walks off your set like that, you should probably be like, yeah, he's probably right. And then right. Your life. <laughs> Denova28 says, wait, they had money for this? Where did it all go? Well, I can say that where a lot of it went was because it's very expensive to shoot in Pioneer Town. Like I said, it's a living town and it has a population. So the area is unincorporated, but people actually live there. And they their jobs and their income is pretty much based on the things that are shot there. That's what it does. So you have individuals that live there and run the different establishments that are utilized in the movie. And so in order to do that... The movies come in and they have to pay all these people that live there in order to use this little town in order to make this thing happen. And so likely a lot of the money went to just shooting in Pioneer Town to make use of it. And it's so fucking bad. The lighting is bad. The sound is bad. Because it's it's fucking windy in Southern California. And so the, the audio is all fucked up. There is like weird tertiary, weird secondary plots. Here was the, here was the fucking worst. And I'm going to spoil this. They had, they literally go from one scene into the next scene. So it's like one scene where we're building up to the to the action, building up to it to action. The hero is trapped in his room, and they're standing guard outside. They think he's the werewolf, and they're gonna they're gonna fucking like lynch him and some shit. Then it jumps like immediately the very next scene is a conversation between the priest and the inspector, and in this conversation they have, they rehash. An entire score of events that took place in between locking up the protagonist and the conversation they're having. They shot <laughs> none of it. It was just talking. Well, actually, no. So they shot some little tiny bits and pieces. Like, ooh, he, he escaped the room. Ooh, this person, like it. And like this. But they never actually shot. It was all this action. Never made it to film. Or if well, it did, see, it got cut out of film. I don't fucking know. 
when you shoot half a film in three days, you can't <laughs> shoot it. <laughs> You're just going to tell the audience what happened. I understand. Oh, see, Clive J. Turner maintained and funded the retirement fund of Pioneer City. He pretty much damned it. Hey, Quantum Degrees are good to see you. Thanks for much for hanging out. But that's the. this is what is so fucked up. I, mean, I understand that Turner was very ambitious. He wanted to make a seventh film that connected all of the unrelated Howling films together into one coherent timeline. And he wanted to do it. And it was, this is ballsy as a filmmaker. He wanted to shoot a movie that relied solely on pretty previous footage from the previous three films in order to maximize the amount of profit that he could make on it because he knew he probably was going to make a, a bunch but if you really if most of your movie is reuse footage you don't have to spend a ton of money so everything you make is just gravy unfortunately that's not what happened and then so, we get we get like the the i don't even know what to compare that fucking werewolf transformation to what the that the, the Morph? It, it was like a fuck. You remember those books in the nineties? The animorphs. Animorphs, where it's like the kid is like do, 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 do. it's like a squirrel. It was like that. Yeah, that's that's exactly what it was. So so basically, what you're telling me is you can save money by shooting for three days and then borrowing clips from other movies <sighs> to make a movie yourself. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. And then not hiring actors, you just hire townsfolk. There's a reason why they why this fit why after this movie dropped, it was direct to DVD. Where there's a reason why after this they reboot the whole fucking franchise. And no, and Denova, no, Twilight was better than this because Twilight had production value. Twilight at least had production value and some, I mean, you know, come on, it had like, you know, it had legitimate actors in it, it had like Martin Sheen in it, it had fucking Dakota Fanning in it, and individuals we know we can act have terrible script, but at least Twilight had some redeeming qualities. It was shot well. It looked like a good, it looked visually like a good movie. Good cameras. I will say they probably used, this was, you know, because this came out in 95, I think they, re- they it, look, it almost looked like they were using the same camera setup as they used as was used on the stand, the the television series The Stand, because mm-hmm. some of the wide shots had that had that kind because of, it loses that kind of uh, it gets that kind of grain the the, the wider your shot gets, so it just I saw some similarities there, but holy fuck, what the shit, and I think it comes down to because Clive because ultimately you know Nall and uh, Turner you know split all, all, obviously over the werewolf issue. But, you know, Turner wanted to make a character-driven story that focused on the hillbilly community in the town and less on the fucking werewolf, and you're making a goddamn howling movie. I mean, that's like, hey, let's make a slasher film without a killer and just have people just live their lives. That's exactly that's exactly what it was. And Nemo 813, Mighty Morphin Werewolves. I know, right? <laughs> fucking terrible. And I mean, fucking, what was it? Seven. Oh, no. Six. Doesn't matter. Way too many line dancing scenes. From multiple angles. <laughs> one angle, it was super dark. The other one looks like they're staring into a goddamn spotlight. Why? It's like one line dancing. Still, uh, we I don't know what to do. Uh, dance. I would almost say that one line dancing scene is too much. And you're not even in Texas. It didn't even lead 
anything. It wasn't like there anything happened at the line dancing scene. It's like there was line dancing and the werewolf came in and people freaked out and everybody scattered and there was some death and it was a massacre. Great, that would have worked. Nope, just line dancing. Really slow line dancing at that. So oh, yeah, they re- really dive into like, the director really liked to watch some line dancing. And uh, I had no fucking clue. You know, it, it really, it, it, it was bad. So Sarcastic's Blast Me Twilight had no redeeming qualities. The fact that it was well shot was just, uh, was just there as a contrast to polish a particular turn. They're not great. They're not good films, but at least like good cameras. And they had people that knew how to use the cameras and set up lighting and set up sound. At least they did that. Technically, it, it works as a movie. You know, it didn't fall. I mean, you got the technical aspect of shooting the movie. Then you got the editing the film. Then you look at the script and then you got the acting and you got the direction. So... Directing on that, those were lazy. The actors, although they're good, had terrible scripts. And delivering terrible writing is really fucking hard. And then you've got... At least it was a pretty... It was prettily shot. Yeah. This wasn't! It wasn't! <laughs> There's a reason this ended the original franchise and they reboot the fucker. <laughs> fucking just, hell. Just you know? And I, so my, so for, for my beleaguered co-hosts you have my sincerest apologies and for anyone in the live chat who saw the poster on the community post on youtube and went and watched this fucking movie you have my sincerest apologies because yo go ahead i was gonna say it was about maybe 15 minutes into it when i hit the two times button on the youtube (laughs) 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 denova 28 okay got a challenge denova 28 says how dare you say kristen stewart is a good actor kristen stewart is a very talented actress when she is given something when when she's got something she can sink her teeth into if you have not seen her portrayal as princess diana she is actually really fucking good. And, um... American Ultra, where she's stoned the whole time, so you can't tell that she's monotone. Yeah. Essentially, it was kind of like Adventureland with more violence. (laughs) But when it comes down to it, but Kristen Stewart is actually a talented actress. She actually is. She just doesn't get the opportunity to be a talented actress very often. And so, I think there was one where she played the shopping assistant, where it was like the shopping assistant or something like that, which was a horror film, was a psychological horror film. She was actually quite good in that. Or like like um, somebody who goes and buys clothes for you. Uh, uh, I, know what you're, I know what you're talking about. I just can't think of the name. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, 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 shop, the personal, personal Shopper. So she was in a movie called Personal Shopper. And she was quite good in that film. The movie where she plays Diana, she was also quite good in that film. She just doesn't get the opportunities to really flex her wings and be a good actress. So... I'll just you know give it that, but she actually is quite it's quite decent. She's also good in, in ensemble draw in ensemble work. When she's leading, it's really tough, but she's good in ensemble work. But yeah, when it comes, so I'm done with this. So you have my apologies, may <laughs> culpa, may culpa. Yeah, let's let's move on. But I will ask the audience this, since we are ostensibly talking about the Howling franchise, and this one, woo. I do want to ask the audience, let's leave it on a good note. What is your favorite entry in the Howling franchise? I know we're going to get a lot of love for the first one. Two was actually was, was, was decent. Six was fucking weird. You know, the freaks and marsupials was also weird. So there's some weird stuff in there. But what is your favorite entry in the Howling franchise? Leave us a comment down below or in the weekendhorrorgmail.com or here in the live stream. Number three, so, my lord. Oh, fucking hell. That, ah. Oh. 
I'm let's so talk sorry. about a much much better movie. Alex, let's what do we talk, got next? Yeah, yeah, let's talk about a, a much more enjoyable movie. <laughs> and they spent less money on it. Yeah, and fuck? it's still fun. <laughs> okay, well, this one is pretty fun. This movie is called Don't Fuck in the Woods. It's like pretty much the number one rule. Uh, this one came out October 25th, 2016. We have a trailer for this one, right? We do have a trailer okay, for this one. It's fantastic. Now, this is how you do low budget. Exactly. This this was written and directed by, oh, excuse me, Sean Burkett, uh, starring Brandy Mason, Scott Gillespie, uh, Brittany Blant- Blanton, sorry, E.C. Uh, Howard, Roman Josser, Hannah Hurt, uh, and a slew of other people that are probably also in the porn industry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because there's, there's a lot of that. Um, this movie, as you, I mean, it's, it pretty much gives it away. Uh, these college kids are going to celebrate their graduation and, uh, the group of the friends and some of the horror aficionados head off into the woods like you're not supposed to do. And, uh, sh- shit gets real. Shit gets real, real fast. Real yes. fast. It's like, yeah. it's immediate. They park the car and shit goes wrong. And while I'll, I'll point out in the trailer that we just watched, it was saying like, you know, like, but you know, all this gore and all like this. Actually, I'm going to say that the, the titties to gore ratio in this film is really skewed towards the titties because there are lots of titties in this movie and some gore, some gore, but they, they went really hard in the, like, how many actresses can we get to take their, to show their tits in this movie? Why? Because titties is cheaper than gore. Titties, t- stop that. Titties is cheaper than gore. You're right. That's that's gonna go into the trailer someday. Titties is cheaper <laughs> than gore. It absolutely is. This is, I mean, this is a type of film that they knew exactly what it is. Like, listen, it's gonna be called "Don't Fuck in the Woods." If you fuck in the woods, a monster's gonna kill you. Yes. What more? What more do you need? What, like story wise, what more? Hey, then we're gonna have some gore. We're gonna get some intestines ripped out. We're gonna have a guy get his dick pulled off. I mean, it's just blood and guts everywhere. If you fuck in the woods, you die. The end. That's it. That's it. Then this was such a oh yeah. Sir, so sarcasm brings up trauma. Trauma says both. And I say that this was. I would say don't fuck in the woods is is definitely kind of like a love letter or an homage to you know trauma films. The film, you know, this came out in 2016, and it's as simple as it sounds. Horny teens go in woods, they fuck, and get killed by monster. You don't need anything more than that. The beauty of this one, and the difference between a movie like this, where this movie had a far, you know, like, a very low budget. I think this was uh, $250,000 was the budget on this one. And you compare it to someone who was trying to, compare it to a movie like fucking Howling 7, where they were trying to do something serious, and it comes out crap. The, the thing that makes this wonderful is that this is all about the fun of filmmaking. This is all about making the, the joy of making a horror movie. You do not worry about the little things. You do not try to control every little thing on your set. You know, under, you understand as a filmmaker that things are not always going to go to plan. That things, you're going to run into shit. Things are going to get crazy. Things may not look the way you, you, you envision them in your mind. But that's okay. Because we're here to have fun, and we don't need to get caught up in the minutia when we're just trying to just, like, kill horny teens in the woods. It's really fucking simple. It's a pretty simple formula that if you overcomplicate, you're going to fuck this movie up. Fuck it up. They did not do this in this, and you could tell that no matter what, everybody in this movie was having an absolute fucking blast shooting this thing, you know, 
so, wow, just so many sex scenes, just like crazy. And, you know, just this, and a lot of weird sex jokes, all kinds of, you know, just goofy shit. But nonetheless, this is what it's about. This is the heart of not only this genre, but the heart of filmmaking itself. It should be fun. It should be something you enjoy about it. You shouldn't come away going, God, that was a fucking slog. You know, go th- go out there and just just do it. Just do it and have fun. Do it like, you know, not do it, do it. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Look, not like they did in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> at least not in the woods. At least that's where we're getting out of Yeah, not in the woods. You, in your own home is perfectly okay, but not in the woods. Exactly. And so, I mean, and I enjoyed this one the most. I enjoyed this one the most because when it comes down to it, when you when you get caught up in the minutiae, and Eugene can speak to this to uh, to a far stronger you know degree than I can, when that it's really really easy to get lost in the little things that are going on all around you while you're on set, because obviously filming filming in exterior locations, which this one was shot on location, shot out there in the woods with a few with a few interior shots. You had some people's apartments. You had the comic book shop. Or the I was the comic book shop. Was it comic book shop? Or a game store or whatever. I don't. Yeah, this is a know. game store. Like a, a head shop, I guess. I don't know. But you had some interiors, but most of this is all shot outside. Outside shooting is always really dicey because you never know what's going to happen. One thing that did occur, like for example, while they were shooting, the lead actress, uh, the the final girl in it, accidentally kicked over a hornet's nest that she didn't see and wound up getting stung all over her face. That kind of crazy shit takes place. It kind of happens. You never know what's going to happen, especially when you're shooting outdoors. Weather can be a problem. Can be a problem. You know, weird people can walk onto your set, so it's always dicey. And trying to control every little thing is always going to be problematic. You can get lost in the minutia, and when you do that, people get frustrated, people get annoyed, people start going at one another, and then you're in the set, set, stuck in the middle of the fucking woods with your one hundred eighty dollar monster, which is how much they spent to make that fucker, and nobody's having fun which will come through in your final in your final cut see this is about knowing what your film is having a clear identity of what your film is supposed to be because that's one of the biggest important things because as long as your film has a clear identity you know the tropes that you can rely on you know how to market to the audience that's going to watch your film because people who don't like slashers, people who don't like horror film are automatically going to be turned away and we don't want them to watch it. We don't want them. (laughs) But the people who, for example, they like trauma film, the people who like slashers, the people who like B films, the people who like are, will see something like don't fuck in the woods and go, yeah, let's throw it on. Let's throw it on. Pop some popcorn, crack open a couple beers and let's laugh as some people have sex and get killed. And that's exactly what, and that's, and it hits its mark. It hits a goal. It hits exactly what it's trying to be. This isn't never going to be an award-winning film. It's never going to take <laughs> a dance or win an Academy Award for anything. And when you realize stuff like that, you can get it with cheap green screen, cheap CGI that they use here and there. You can get away with some cheap effect because the audience is laughing. It's basically telling a joke to an audience, and the audience is laughing with you and having a good time. That's what yeah. this film is. <laughs> oh, Aaron Reese. See, even bees like tits. That's, that's what I was <laughs> laughing at. <laughs> yes, they do. They absolutely do. Oh, and apparently Sarcasm corrected me. It was a, it was a video store they were in. I couldn't tell. There was big tears sure. on the screen. So I could and a lot of and a lot of a lot of just sapphic energy. Throughout this whole thing, it's like really, and that that 
that was so it was weird because it had like the kind of you know like the male misogynism that's classic in slashers but then it had the kind of female empowerment like you know taking control of the sex and that and, like shutting guys down i think the, the funniest dude was the stoner guy who's just like you know constantly smoking weed and constantly wanting to fuck everybody and nobody likes his ass and i don't even know why he's there because he's the only one who doesn't have any like a, he's, he's the only one who's not in a couple so they bring him along like you know the obnoxious slob that he is he was the guy who got forced into the sit in like the the hatch of the car (laughs) (laughs) but you know it it was it was entertaining that's what it is it's a popcorn movie it's designed specifically for those who like this kind of stuff not everybody's gonna dig it and but you know when you're trying to make a movie that's what i loved about this because it reminded me of what it was like when i first got into the industry when you get onto a movie set and the cameras are everywhere, and people are giving direction. People are running around, running around, setting up lights, running around, setting up sound. You're kind of like just there as an actor. You're kind of just like, I got my lines, do my thing. And I don't even know if there were was really a script because it seemed like a lot of shit was ad libbed because a lot of this is mostly sex scenes and, and death. But when it comes down to it, it's a you know you see the fun in it, and they you can tell because in the credits they break away and they show. Like a sequence, they show like the blooper reels, like the blooper reels and all the behind the scenes, you know, the goofiness that they that they got they, they got up to during the making of the movie. These guys had fun, and there's a reason why this film got a fucking sequel. So yeah, you're not shooting for Sundance or anything like that, but you know, play to your audience. As long as someone enjoys watching your film, you did your job. Fuck yes. It's That's just, it. Pointing them, fantastic. Donnie does that. Wonder if the filmmaker made this to get some of those girls to hang out with them. Hey, I'm a horror. I'm making a horror movie of film, and I got part a part. I think you'd be perfect for. I don't. Yo, know, th- not in this kind of deal. Not in this kind of mentality. Um, when it, you know, there's a yes. There's a lot of goofiness, and there's a lot of you know nudity and a lot of stuff like that. But f- f- being on a movie set is is sometimes a kind of a grueling experience especially when you're doing like extended sex scenes like they're doing girls got to be topless guys got to be you know clothes got to be off it's it's not i wish i could say that it's a lot of fun but it's sometimes just kind of obnoxious because at night it gets cold and you know you got to constantly be you know like going naked and covering up going naked in between sets and it's just exhausting is what it is it's fun but it's really really exhausting and plus a lot of the stuff that they're doing in the film is not really what people do naturally so like someone, I think someone mentioned in the live chat, they couldn't tell if it was a horror film or a softcore porn. So, but yeah, you know, it's usually what it is. But, oh yes, Aaron Reese says sequel. They had excess tits. They found excess tits. They did. They, <laughs> they got. They did. got some more. <laughs> yeah. No, it, go ahead. Yeah, it's when it comes to when it comes to scene to filming scenes like that. There is nothing like enjoyable because you have. 30 40 people standing around you you got a mic over you you have the light and it could be cold outside and then you're like okay hang on we got to move the camera we got to relight this okay go for a little bit all right now stop we got to do this we got to do all right we're going to go take a break and then there's no music going on there's just there's it's just not enjoyable it's just not <laughs> the guys that are like oh man i get to at least you know rub up against some hot girl it, no, no one, no one's having a good time. After take nine or ten, it gets kind of old. Yeah, you know, and you have to maintain the same energy every single time. You know, so it's like ah, 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 ah. 
cut. And it's like, okay. Like that. Then, okay, so reset. Like this. Boom, and do it. And then again, and again, and again. It's just, it's just, it, it's, it's rough. It's, it's not, it's not, I don't think. I think this was an opportunity. He found his opportunity. The director, Sean, Bur- director and writer, Sean Burkett. Um, I looked into his kind of, uh, like, the work that he's done. And this is pretty much his, like, where he sits. So, he did um, Squatch. Someone brought up, like, he did, I think he did, an, uh, he did Squatch. He did Knock, Knock, Knock. And a couple of things. But before this, you know, he did a lot of shorts. Like, Way of the Buffalo, Watch This Theater, The Deranged. And so... His, his 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 mindset is pretty much set in this area of horror, and so he got the opportunity to do, or he got the money, the funding to do "Don't Fuck in the Woods," and that his career just launched. So, because you know he's work on big stuff. He's he's got a Mothman movie coming up. Um, of course, he did "Don't Fuck in the Woods" too, which come which came out this year. I do oh, believe. Is he is he doing the Mothman movie? Project Mothman, yeah. Yeah, I got invited to uh, just a group, not on set or not involved in production on it. But I got invited to like join the group and so yeah, that's cool. I didn't realize he did that. Yeah, and uh, they come at night as well. He was involved in. So just gonna say, stay true to what you love. That's the like I said, this is the heart of filmmaking. Stay true to what you love. Keep honing your craft and have fucking fun. You know, don't be, don't, don't do the David O. Russell thing, you know, where, you know, you win Oscars, but everybody fucking hates your ass, you know, do the Carpenter thing. Everybody fucking loves him. Sure, his movies will probably never win giant awards, and yeah, Ghost of Mars was really, really fucking bad, but doesn't matter. We all had, we had fun when we were working on there, the set is a fun time, and people will say, people say, yes, I will work with John Carpenter any day, okay? Not just because of John Carpenter, because... They're fun sets to work on. I would work as an actor or or on crew or whatever. I would work for Sean Burkett in a heartbeat because he's a fun dude to work with. You know, he knows, like, he has a vision. He loves his genre. And boom, he's going to fucking make it happen. You know, it's even if it doesn't look really great. But <laughs> <laughs> it's going to fucking happen. Uh, all right. Well, we've talked a lot about the... <laughs> The movie that is Don't Fuck in the Woods. <laughs> Good enough for me. I, I'm, I'm, I got two queued up, so I'm ready to see that one too. <laughs> uh, I to ask, yeah. I wanted to ask the audience, uh, what is your favorite schlock B-horror film? There's plenty of them out there mm-hmm. um, that are just absolutely terrible. Uh, but some of them are actually pretty good. Uh, it's funny because you pull up the list on, on Google and I think the first one is fucking Trolls 2. <laughs> like, shit. Troll 2, man. Yeah, it's not good. Best of the but, bad. But I yeah. guess, if you're, if you're going to look at it that way. Yeah, so let us know. <laughs> let us know in the comments down below. All right, we can when you get a documentary of how about about how bad your <laughs> movie, is, movie is, that's amazing. that means your movie is amazing. Hey, you did great. It's just you, you, you hit it. Yeah. Oh, Sarcasm brings up Shrooms. Ronilla's I bring up Plan 9 from Outer Space. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, Travis Brown, Frankenhooker. Yes! Yes. Head in the Lauder. Fantastic stuff. Tromeo and Juliet. Tromeo and Juliet. Tromeo and Juliet. Oh, um, Evil Bong. Yep. Manos, The Hands of Fate. Uh, Ginger Dead, the Ginger Dead Man series. Especially the yeah. first one. Oh. Gary Busey is the voice. Fucking A. <laughs> yeah, it get better than that. Josh releases Manos. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Fuck yeah. All right. Hey, Eugene. Let's uh speaking of trauma, let's let's do oh, a, yes. Let's do a fun one. I know we just did a fun one. Let's do a, a weird one. 
a yeah, a weird <laughs> that still has tits and gore. Oh, uh, so many, so many, so much, so many. Man, a theme. every week there's a theme. There's man, Toxic Avenger. One. Yeah, just yeah. man, talk. He fucks so many people. Anyway, <laughs> we have Terror Firmer, which was released October 29th, nineteen ninety nine. I have to. It, I have to interject at this point. So this is a professional jail coming in. We are unable to show the trailer for Terror Firmer. The trailer for Terror Firmer is not appropriate to show on this channel, unfortunately. There is too much nudity, and I could not edit it out. <laughs> so, because there's a lot of voice work over the nudity, and it makes it sound really, really stupid. I tried. I even tried to black bar that shit. It did not work, because the tits go everywhere. So, unfortunately, the, I cannot show it here, but you can see the trailer in our Discord. So, if you go to the Weekend Horror Discord, go to the trailer section. You will see the trailer there, and you will immediately say... JL was correct. They could not show this live. They would see, be shut no. down in you a heartbeat. Our Discord. What you should have done is you should have edited it and just left it disjointed, just straight <laughs> up, just random. Like, hey, huh, uh, no, no, I can't. Uh, the end of trailer. That's it. <laughs> there's just there's just too many titties. There's too many titties. A, a flash of titties, okay, like a flash, like in Puppet Master. But there's just too many titties. It's a tit splosion. Yes, Travis Brown. It's a tit explosion, is what it was. <laughs> it was bad boy twos of tits, and so I couldn't I just pixelate the entire trailer. Yeah, I guess I could have done that, but but nonetheless, um, unfortunately, we can't show the trailer. But you can go see the trailer in our Discord. The link for the Discord is in the is in the uh, description. You can go there and check it out in the trailer section. So we'll just go ahead and continue with the breakdown. Apologies, <laughs> editorial JL is Stepperio stepping out. Did you put a Make sure. for, uh, for the description? <laughs> uh, definitely make sure when you click on the trailer, your browser's in incognito mode. <laughs> uh, Don't want the NSA knowing what you're watching. <laughs> exactly. Or your browser history. <laughs> Either way. VPN terrible. engaged. <laughs> 13 people lost their jobs this week because I did look in their browser. God. So we have Terror Firmer, which is obviously by Troma Entertainment, directed by the man, the myth, the legend himself, Lloyd Kaufman, starring William Keenan, Alice de Laurel? Lloyd Kaufman. Alice LaTourelle. Alice LaTourelle. La Lloyd Kaufman himself, who plays the director, mm. Trent Hagen, Debbie Rochon, and Ron Jeremy. <laughs> Fucking Ron Jeremy was in this bitch. <laughs> Just Ron Jeremy. Why not? And it, and it has to be pointed out that the film was written by Douglas Buck, Patrick Cassidy, uh, Lloyd Kaufman, and James Gunn. So James Gunn, yes, of Guardians of the Galaxy Fair, of Slither, like that. James Gunn got his start writing for trauma and, and there's also an uncredited uh, the uncredited appearance of trey parker and matt stone from south park fair as the hermaphrodites in this movie i can't believe those words are coming out of my fucking <laughs> when you started this podcast did you think you'd have to say something like that i know right? it's like trey parker and matt T matt stone as the hermaphrodites so okay <laughs> 
So the oh yeah, Ron fucking Jeremy, if you please. <laughs> I I would give Ron Jeremy a little bit more a little bit more credit if there wasn't so much bad stuff going on in Ron Jeremy's life right now. Yeah, so, he's, in, he's in prison right now. Yeah, he's in bad bad trouble. So yeah. he's he did bad some bad bad. Yeah, he did some bad stuff. The Hedgehog did some bad stuff. Um, I wonder if anybody will know that reference, but nonetheless, um, so. Lloyd Kaufman and James Gunn wrote a book called All I Need to Know About Filmmaking I Learned from the Toxic Avenger. And this film is kind of loosely based on that book and the experiences of being on set, making movies, and doing stuff the trauma style. Um, which is why it the film kind of jumps all over the place and takes bits and pieces from all over the place. The movie is kind of like this weird hodgepodge of virtually everything that trauma does. So if you took all of Tromaville and jammed it all into one movie set... All led by the insane, blind director that is Lloyd Kaufman. This played by Lloyd Kaufman. And him peeing all over everybody, which is fucking weird. But yes, two you know, streams, trauma. by the way, too. Two streams. Two streams. Two, two streams. Not one. Two. <laughs> so, but that's essentially what the, what the film is. There's kind of a plot where there's a killer going around. There's a love triangle going on uh, between, people, between people on the set. Um, but I will say this. There is not one subject... Not one that is left untouched. If you name it, if you can think of it for a horror film, no matter what, doesn't matter. Go deep. Go go dark web. When you think about this shit, they touch on it. And I do mean shit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's not pudding. <laughs> <laughs> the porter shit. None of that. None of that. Oh. That's what that is. <laughs> Jesus oh. Christ, trauma films, man. <laughs> they bring you greats like a nymphoid barbarian in dinosaur hell and banana, motherfucker. <laughs> so, okay, the, the big thing you take on this one, obviously, anybody, trauma rule 34, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. It, 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 if it exists, it, it, it's, you know, there's porn of it, and if there's porn of it, it showed, it, it's been touched on by a trauma picture. So everybody is in this. Sergeant, Sergeant Kabuki Man is in this. Toxic Avenger is in it. You know, everybody makes an appearance, and they, you know, it's it's literally like I made the joke that Tromaville is the world that atheists want. <laughs> you know, but but nonetheless, but that's what makes this fantastic is because you get bits and pieces of everything Troma's ever done. But ostensibly, the film in and of itself, despite the all of the in jokes and all of the the cracks at the political cracks and all the all the commentary that's in there, and all the little like one liners. The film, from a filmmaking perspective, is literally a masterclass. In there, in there are in, in the filmmaking ads, there are no problems. There are only opportunities. No matter what you run into, you just do it because the story isn't so much with the film itself. It's in the making of the movie is where the real heart of it goes. So it's a masterclass in guerrilla filmmaking. It's a masterclass in on the fly special effects in tr just basically getting the shot no matter what it takes and no matter how bad it looks because we're going to put it on camera and we don't care how we fucking get there this lloyd kaufman is the fucking king of guerrilla of guerrilla filmmaking and making happen because one of the big things about this was that the new york police department often clashed with the film production because they're running all over the place shooting in all these different places and numerous times the nypd revoked their filming license because the filming permits. They said, no, you can't do this. But they fucking did it anyway. And I have, and I still to this day, have no clue how they managed to pull off 
the fat guy going being eaten by the escalator. That was a public area that they were in. Yeah. And they just shot it, and it was fucking gnarly. That's a lot and of blood. They and then they got the fuck out of there. Without that, without getting arrested. So no, and that scene was fucking it, it I I saw it a long, 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 long time ago and it stuck with me because I was pretty young when this came out. And it was one thing that I saw young and every time I saw an escalator, I would think of that scene and it freaked it's still to this day when I'm in a mall, <laughs> I, I look at an escalator, I'm like, fuck, that's it. I'm I'm done. Jump off the end and run away as fast as possible. But yeah, it's yeah, it just fucks you up. But that's the good thing about the trauma. That's it's like if you want to make a film, they'll help you do it. They don't give a shit what it looks like. They don't care what anybody thinks about it. And that's the kind of people that you need on set. Now, like, when people, like, you know, come and they're like, here's uh, fucking The Howling New Moon Rising. I'm sure they're probably like, even we know this is shit. But it, they pretty much make anything that comes across their table, which is super cool. And that's, I threw I threw a link up in the chat, too, if you want to go check out some of the just outrageous film titles that Troma has put out there. It's, it's just, it's amazing. Aaron Reese brings up, he's also one of the most stringent about safety, oddly. Troma couldn't survive a massive lawsuit. This is very true. Yeah. They make a joke of that in the movie multiple times. They keep reminding people, remember the the rules and the rules are safety at all times. It's safety of the, you know, safety of the human, safety of the actors, safety of... And because they like like Aaron said, they can't survive a big thing. So it's always everything is so no matter what you're seeing in the movie, everything is redonkulously safe and planned out to I guess perfection. I guess I, I guess it works. I mean, um, they, they get them in the can. Yeah, it, I mean exactly. And this is why trauma has become one of the legends in the horror community because right. it has its own style. And you take films like Don't Fuck in the Woods. Don't Fuck in the Woods is clearly influenced by trauma. I yes. guarantee you um, the director and the producer and all of them have seen all the trauma films and probably grew up with them because you have this style. Once again, knowing the identity of your film so you can cater to the audience you want to cater to. And would you need pet? Watch this film. Depends how your stomach is because, man, there's a lot of fluids in this film. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was, It was. I mean, the, the, I, can't, I can't think of anything that wasn't touched on this one. Yeah. Bodily dismemberment, drugs, sex, like, 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 graphic, like, like, virtually, like, like, graphic sex, uh, shit play, piss play. I mean, there's, there's nothing that's off limits, you know? Every single thing you saw like that. Fetus is being ripped out of people. You know, it's <laughs> everything. <laughs> the, the headlines said defeatist somebody. <laughs> you know, that that's that's the legend. That's the, the, the legend of trauma. You know, starting back in like nineteen seventy nine when Lloyd Kaufman directed Squeeze Play, um, which is you know, uh, which is a, a sports themed comedy film, and then he moved on and he did like Mother's Day in nineteen eighty, which was a rape and revenge slasher film. And that was uh written co co written and produced by Charles Kaufman. Um and uh you know, who Lloyd and Lloyd ostensibly, it was his brother, was Lloyd's brother. And so they kind of kicked off doing, you know, doing what worked and then just kind of like went for, went for broke. And then I think it really kind of came together with Toxic Avenger back in 1984. And Toxic Avenger is where the splatter, the irreverent splatter comedy or the the self-deprecating irreverent splatter comedy really, really worked, you know, for the, for the kind of cult audience, for the kind of, it was almost grindhouse underground stuff, but really, really funny. 
And so that that's where it was. Then you get like Class of Nukem High and Surf Nazis Must Die and fucking Rabbit Grannies and shit. And it just keeps going bigger and bigger and bigger until, you know... And then you look at their their history. Then, of course, more Toxie films. We're looking, we have a Toxic Avenger remake coming up. And then, of course, Sergeant Kabuki Man and, you know, Tales from the Crapper. You know, the list goes on and on and on. You find, like, you find what works, and then you maximize it every single time. And then, of course, you look at everybody that Troma gave us. We wouldn't have James Gunn. James Gunn, who uh, then went on to do Super, went on to do Slither, which is definitely a trauma-inspired production. Just really, really high production value. And it had Nathan Fillion and Elizabeth Banks and Michael Rooker in it. And then now with Guardians of the Galaxy. So the people that came out of Troma, Troma would be like the, the, like the, the training ground. I would say one of the best training grounds for low-budget, get-it-in-the-can filmmaking, to learn the thing as as fa- to learn it fast and hard and get really really nasty, so you're not. I mean, the, uh, the tales will come out with trauma. You don't make a lot of money. No one's gonna get rich working for trauma. Lloyd Kaufman himself is not gonna get rich. He's not gonna get rich off his movies. He makes movies so that he can make money to just make more movies. That's what it is. So it just keeps going and going and going and going and going. And but the people that it's jammed out, the people who have learned lessons, life lessons, and filmmaking lessons from Lloyd Kaufman. That's the legacy that Troma has left us. It's like literally the boot camp for anybody who wants a, a fun boot camp for anyone who wants to get into this industry. We had um, on I was the show. To say we had Jim uh, Jim Ojala. Jim Ojala yeah, got his who, start doing yeah doing doing uh, effects work for Troma. For Troma, and then he went on to do he did Firefly the TV, and then he went hmm. on to do like X Men, uh, and and he's done uh, he did he did Thor uh, also. So now he's doing like. Marvel films, like a lot of people get their start because the thing is this: you gotta get your you gotta get your foot in the door, and you gotta just make movies. Right. If you want to be a filmmaker, you have to just make, movies and you keep going because you're never gonna get to the hundred million, two hundred million dollar budget films if you're not doing the thousand dollar film, the ten thousand dollar film. If you're not doing those, so you just have to do it. Yeah, I would strongly recommend anybody who would be interested in filmmaking. Obviously, Troma is where to go, and you could learn a lot just by watching their movies. As gross as they are, maybe you don't have the stomach for it, maybe you do, but it's not really about the stomach, it's about what you can take away from it. And if you pick up his books, all I need to know about filmmaking I learned from The Toxic Avenger, make your own damn movie, direct your own damn movie, and produce your own damn movie, and sell your own damn movie. So, I mean, the books that Kaufman has written is just everything you need to know about literally forcing your way into this industry. You know, who to talk to, how to get money, how to sell a film, how to, how to, how to deal with all the shit that you deal with when you're behind the camera. So everything that goes on from actors to set and everything, and then, of course, you know, everything that goes into it. I think the most eye-opening one was there was an anecdote in Make Your Own Damn Movie from uh, Matt Parker and Trey Stone, who were basically trying to like launch their own careers and everything. And this is the inspiration Lloyd gave them is where basketball came from. Because they were trying to get out there and do something really strong. And Lloyd was like, you know, was sitting down there talking the way they described it is like he was like eating tacos or something that had lots of guacamole and he was just like he was like, oh no, no, just all messy and shit. But he was telling them one, you're not going to make any money doing this. Not at first. If you ever make money, it's not going to you. Know, you're not going to make any money at first. You're going to be broke. So you just have to accept that right now. If you want to do this, it's going to be you know, it's going to be a slog. You're just going to do it, and there's not going to be any money. Deal with this. Is well, well, how do we get people? Just, no one's going to want to film, fund your film. 
Yeah, I mean, it's going to be damn near impossible to find money. He kept giving them bad news. Bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news. And they were like, so they almost walked away broken by this meeting that they had with Kaufman until Kaufman finally said, but you love doing this, right? It was like, yeah, then you just need to fucking do it. And I can give you some tips, but uh, you know, don't think you're going to walk in there and fucking Spielberg it out. It's just not going to happen. You know, this is not the way it's the industry is a different beast than it used to be back in the 60s and 70s and the 80s. Yeah, that's I mean, that's that's true. That's very, very true. Most filmmakers are broke. Most filmmakers don't make a lot of money. But if you can make enough money to pay your rent and to make your next film and to pay your rent and make your next film. And the thing is, and one of the things I love about this industry is I get to work with my friends. How many, yeah. t- how many people get to hire their friends and help your friends get jobs? And so you get to chill on set doing what you love with your friends. Yeah, you may not be making a lot of money. You may be make- making next to nothing, or you might actually be making nothing. But it's fun. Yes. And how many people can say they have fun at their job? We can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a big that's the big takeaway. The, you know, there's a lot, you know, like this is the fun part of horror, you know, that, you know, everything we talked about, lots of tits, lots of gore, just have fun, you know, don't do Howling New Moon Rising. That was a fucking, Howling New Moon Rising is what you don't do, what you don't approach with. That was an ego project. That was literally a Clive Turner's love letter to himself. <clears throat> I love this and I'm going to make a movie about what I love and it's going to be the thing that, no, when you make movies for when you make movies with only you in mind, you lose the point. But when you make movies with a love of the genre, <clears throat> with a love of the fandom, when you really, really have that at heart, then you can't go wrong. Whether you're spending trauma money <clears throat> or you're spending carpenter money. Whether you've got, <clears throat> you know, dang, <clears throat> curve my throat, I dried out a little bit there. Well, you know, whether you're working with fucking, you know, What's her name? Uh, totally uh, like La, uh, La Terrell. Whether you, you're, you're whether you're filming a goofy ass scene where Alice La Terrell is like masturbating with a pickle, or you've got Donald Pleasance espousing exposition to Victor Wong in front of your liquefied Satan. It doesn't fucking matter. It all comes down to it. This is supposed to be a fun experience for everybody involved, and it's supposed to you know you have those things at heart. So we've seen both sides of the spectrum here. Exactly. Denova28 says, which is worse, Monos or New Moon Rising? New Moon Rising. New Moon Rising, hands 100%. down. No, I've watched Mano's Hands of Fate at least 10 times, and I can still have fun watching that. Rising times two, and that's it. That's <laughs> yes, yes, Denova28. I said that right, with a pickle. Pickles have a, <laughs> have a theme. There's a theme in it. The, trust me, dude. Everything is in this movie. Every, everything. 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 <laughs> Tom Travis Brown, someone need to quit holding that pickle. There's <laughs> like this weird pickle thing, and then fucking Ron Jeremy in there. God damn it! Just, no. just, if, you, if they were walking down the street, they cast him in this movie. And, you know, just it, it's all it's just like you know. Oh, and anybody? Okay, it's not just sensitive stomachs; it's sensitive mentalities in general. Trauma's not for you if you're like easily yeah. offended by anything, especially like you know gender stuff or LGBTQ or like you know, or or political or race or whatever don't want don't you just it's not for you (laughs) yeah it's (laughs) nothing nothing is off the table right but speaking of trauma i want to know what's your favorite trauma film 
There's a lot of them out there, and there's a lot mm-hmm. of great ones. But which one is your favorite? Was it Terra Firmer? Was it The Toxic Avenger or one of its sequels? There's um, a bunch of them out there. So what is your favorite trauma film? Oh, my number one favorite? That's hard. It's hard to really... It's, it's hard to not, to not think of, of Toxic Avenger and the Toxic Avenger franchise. I think the Toxic Avenger... It, like Toxic Avenger is probably the biggest one because I like I watched Toxic Avenger first on it and then we started watching the sequels. But I mean, there's some other ones, uh, Tromeo and Juliet. That's uh, a good Class one. of Newcomb High was pretty damn good, and um, Poultry Geist was another. Was another <laughs> yeah, song. It was just a was just a crazy fucking entry. I'd say <laughs> Poultry Geist is up there. Um, but fuck yeah, I'm gonna have to side with Toxic Avenger just because you know. <laughs> Charlie so, wants a dumpster baby. Nice. <laughs> oh, there's there's so much fucking there's so much fucking craziness. But definitely let us know down in the live chat or in the live chat. Let us know down in the comments or a weekend or gmail.com. What is your favorite trauma film? Is it something out of Tromaville? Is it some of the films that they formerly that they originally distributed? You know, whatever it is. But uh, definitely let us know. We'd love to hear it. And of course, Alex needs the reading material. Jordan Ellis brings up Cannibal the Musical. Nice. Nice. All right. (laughs) All right. It's that time. It's about that time. It is trivia time. (laughs) See, Alex is so good at it. (laughs) It's much better than we are. We we try to emulate you when you're not here, and it just doesn't. It doesn't go over well. It's not. All right. So for uh, tonight's trivia question, we are giving away. Anything you see in this garage, because clearly it needs to be cleaned out. Because it is getting a little (laughs) bit colder outside, so it's, you know, winter weather is coming. We're giving away a Weekend Horror official hoodie. Oh, it's way better than the shit in here, I promise. Fucking A. So (laughs) so so for a a Weekend Horror official hoodie, here is your trivia question. So we got the live chat up. I got it. I got it. I got it up. Fantastic. Get those Google. Oh, Charlie Wood says, I want that. Fucking a, and it's amazing. It is, it is, it's one of the best things that we have uh, to offer. So, Ronald Saints is my trivia answer. Ron Jeremy and Boondock Saints, close, but not, but, but, you know, not quite there. But here we go. Get those Google fingers ready. Your trivia question tonight for a Weekend Horror official hoodie. The first person who gets the right answer in the live chat will win this hoodie. The question is: Samuel Weil is the directorial pseudonym of what legendary indie director? Samuel Weil is the directorial pseudonym of what legendary indie director? First correct answer in the live chat wins the Weekend Horror official hoodie. Because it's getting cold out there. It is. It's chilly. I've got, got a hoodie on it's right now. It's going to be 90 tomorrow, but yeah. Aaron Reese says they are comfy as hell. Fantastic. Quantum Reese says Ron Jeremy and Killing Zoe. No. Come on. Samuel Weil is the directorial pseudonym of what legendary indie director? <laughs> Alan, <laughs> Alan Smithy. Smithy. <laughs> Charlie Wells, that was great. First correct answer in the live chat. Waiting for him to come in. I get the feeling like mine is not updating as quickly. Nope. Uh, I'm the last... Or people may be looking. Or Samuel everybody lies. Samuel Weil is the directorial pseudonym of what legendary indie director? Denova28 says James Samuel. Nope. Angel Rivera says Ted Wilde. Nope. Charlie Welch says Donald Westlake. Nope. 
Wow, I thought people would get this one fast. I thought people would get it fast. I know, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, I mean, I'm glad that it's taken this minute because the Weekend Horror official hoodie is is the is the most is the most primo item that we sell in our store. Charlie Welch is Frank Patch. No, Tony Regime says Stephen King. No. We'll give you a hint. Samuel Weil, and it's and it's spelled W E I L. Samuel Weil is the directorial pseudonym of what legendary indie director? First name? No, not definitely not Sam Peckinpah. <laughs> <laughs> but good, but good guess. John Carpenter? Nope. Oh, that one hasn't come up for me yet. Oh, John Carpenter, Tony Kravitz. <laughs> <laughs> come oh, on, I know someone's wow, gonna find it. I know is... someone's gonna find it. Who wants it bad enough? It's the hoodie. Who wants a we? John Waters? Oh, nope. Angel Rivera? There it is. There it is. We Got have it. it. Damn. Wow. Angel so, uh, Re- Angel Rivera was first. So we t- we double checked that with the with the live chat, not the top chat. I got the live chat up. Yep. I see Angel Rivera first. Angel Rivera got it first. Yep. Congratulations, Angel Rivera. You won yourself a Weekend Horror official hoodie. And see, Quantum oh, Degreaser was right behind Angel with Lloyd Kaufman. Joshua Lee with Lloyd Kaufman. Tony Regime said Peter Jackson. No. Charlie Welch said, damn it. <laughs> and DeNova28 said, damn, I just found it. It's hard just, to find. It's kind of tough to find. And I wanted it to, uh, and I, I, I was I was terrified that we just talked about Terra Firma. And then I used this and people would automatically would just be like, oh, it's Lloyd Kaufman. And I was like, oh, God damn it. But I'm glad that there was a fight for this one. So congratulations, Angel Rivera. Knock it out of the park. We're going to get your hoodie printed up and sent to you ASAP. Nice. That was good. It was one, two, three. Bam, bam, bam. <laughs> uh, all right. And that will bring another episode of Week in Horror to a close. Thank you all so much for listening, and we truly hope you enjoyed the show. Join us next week when we look back at the genre-bending slaughterhouse rules, ghoulish vigilante offering dark world, the gonzo splatter effort Gorgasm, and the star-studded serial killer horror The Bone Collector. Remember to cast your votes for our our, our host. Wow, see? Remember to cast your votes for our host, JL, to be the first face of horror using the link provided in the description. And I am currently in second. Second, I just checked. I'm currently still in second place. Man, last place came up quick. Oh, wait, no. I'm in first. Hey. It just updated, so... Thank you to all the support out there. I'm still in first. I'm still in first place. Thanks, y'all. That win would be that, that win would be big for not only JL but everybody. I'm in a here glass case of emotion over here, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, and a massive shout out to all of our patrons. Uh, you guys are amazing. You continue to help us make Weekend Board the incredible success it has become. Thank you all so very, very, very much. Um, Joshua Olson does all of our amazing artwork. So if you like the new artwork from this season or any of our previous artwork. Uh, you go check out his designs and art. They are incredible. Hit up his store at www.badsamurai.store. For more horror fun, be sure to follow us on all of the socials for your daily horror posts. Be sure to combat the evil algorithm by dropping a comment, liking, subscribing, and smashing the living fuck out of that bell. And lastly, if you love what we do here and you would like to and are able to support our production, you can by joining and enjoying the tasty benefits of one of our many Patreon tiers. Links to everything, including our Discord community, where you can hang out with us and apparently see some pretty 
provocative trailers at oh, are yes. down in the description <laughs> below. And remember, the glow is the goal. The glow is glow is glow <laughs> is glow. And remember, the goal is global horror domination, and we can't do it without you, our amazing audience. So pretty, pretty pleased with the severed, infested head of Clint Howard on top. Go share the absolute fuck out of this show. Thank you all so much for being the greatest audience a podcast could ever ask for. My name is Alex. And I'm Eugene. I'm JL. And we'll see you all next week. And as always, stay scared.